remember that things keep changing. The environment in which you become successful will be different from the environment you're starting in. It's been very lonely, but I've been absolutely sure of what I've been doing all the time. One cure is to persuade everybody else. My name is Devin Zugel, and I'm a software engineer and writer based out of San Francisco. Today I'm talking to Ted Nelson at the Internet Archive. We're going to talk about the development of personal knowledge bases and the design of his system, Xanadu. So Ted, can you introduce yourself? <clears throat> well, uh, I'm a controversial figure. Uh, some call me an internet pioneer. I have accomplished much less than I intended to do in my lifetime. I've written a lot that has influenced people. I've given a lot of speeches that have influenced people. And my principal work is still unfinished. So at the age of 81, I'm still working hard. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in computing and uh, the path that you took to get there? I believe it was 1952 when Time Magazine had a picture of the Mark II computer on its cover. And I read the article. I was 13 or something. And I had no comprehension of what it was about, but it was important. So I was interested in computers from, from that point on. But I was from a literary family. So I was very interested in evolution. We would, my great-grandparents and grandparents would take me to the planetarium frequently, or the museums. And so I was fascinated by everything. Uh, my problem has always been that I had too many interests. I find everything interesting. As I grew up, I became interested in the future. I, I thought it was going to be a wonderful future, all chromium and art deco with rocket ships. And when I was 13 and 14 in the so-called golden age of science fiction, I was uh, avidly reading about how wonderful it was going to be when we had space satellites. Uh, my favorite author, amazingly, was L. Ron Hubbard when I was 13, before he invented Dianetics and Scientology. A key moment was when Van Nevar Bush's article appeared in 1945. Now, it appeared first in the Atlantic Monthly, and I believe we read it around the, the dinner table, and then again it appeared that fall, that December, in Life magazine, and I read it again. So Bush, who had been President Roosevelt's science advisor, was talking about a future world in which scientists would be able to annotate microfilm. So he imagined something he called a memex, which was a desk with all the world's writings in it on microfilm. And you'd be able to call up any frame and annotate it and create what he called trails. So this fundamental article by Van Nevar Bush influenced me strongly and it simultaneously influenced Douglas Engelbart, who is like me, one of the grandfathers of hypertext, of, of the web. I'm, I'm dithering a bit. So I had literary interests, theatrical interests. My father put me on television when I was 12. I went to college, and I had no idea what I wanted to major in. And I finally ended up majoring in philosophy because it was easiest. And I was interested in all subjects, and I suddenly I hated this business of majoring because that meant restricting and narrowing down. And instead, I wanted to take everything. So my sophomore year, for example, I took extra courses at the University of Pennsylvania because I would then have to narrow down to the honors program in, at Swarthmore. And uh, I, I, took course, I took a linguistics course, which was thrilling, 
with, um, I forgot his name, but the teacher of, of Noam Chomsky. Mm. And uh, I was so happy into many subjects before they became popular in college. And uh, I realized that, hey, I shouldn't be doing, I shouldn't be worrying about the academic stuff. I can manage my own education. And here's an opportunity to do projects. I can do projects of all kinds. So I, I was in theater. I directed a one-night play, got a prize for that. I was an actor. I, uh, I had my own magazine. Here's the, th the third issue of my magazine called Nothing. I'm terribly mm. proud of it. So it was kite-shaped. And you had to unfold it gradually in peculiar ways. And it, the illustrations, by the way, were a wonderful guy named Russ Ryan. But I, I designed the whole thing. I laid it out. The printer had no idea what we were doing. I, I showed him the mock-up, and I thought he understood. But until we made the first, we actually stapled together the first copy, he had no idea. And I look at it now and I say, how in hell did I plan that? I have no idea. But uh, I'm terribly proud of it still. It's, it's, uh, it's elegant. And I was on the student council, and I campaigned for sexual freedom. Now, this is the time, this, this was a time when girls had to sign in, women, girls we call them, had to sign in and out every night so, we, so that the college administration knew where they were and they had to be in at a certain and time. And the men did not. No, no. Uh, but, but control the women and you've got the whole thing settled, supposedly. So, uh, and, and of course, the upper class people, you, you, you know, they got around these rules. We, we really did have sex, but it was furtive <laughs> and, uh, and stupid. So I was, uh, and I was arguing with Dean Cobbs, uh, the Dean of uh, Students, about this on the Student Affairs Committee. And my senior year, she called up the, the uh, she called up the head of the biology department. She said, "We're going to get Ted Nelson. We're going to expel him." And this was the second semester of my senior year. And Dr. Enders, the head of the seat of the biology said, department, said, "No, you're not. The faculty will stand behind him." <laughs> they were always my audience because they were very sophisticated. And uh, so the, the the climax of all this was my senior year when. I wanted to see if I could make movies. So my roommate and I got a $700 grant from the student council to make a movie. So $700 in those days would buy you one hour of black and white film stock development and a work print. That's it. No sound. And uh, 16 millimeter, of course. And so I said, okay, I'll shoot it silent uh, and then we'll put the sound on later. That was called wild sound in those days. And then so it was all planned. Tony was going to write it, and I was going to film it. And then Tony died. So uh, I said, oh, that's the end of that. And wait a minute. At the end of in the second semester, I said, wait a minute. No, Tony would have wanted me to go on. So I made the movie, and I made it up as I went along. So it's a half-hour comedy about loneliness in college, and I'm terribly proud of it. I consider myself a good filmmaker. But most people don't get it because A, it's badly synchronized. B, it's in black and white. C, it's a melancholy satire that's slow moving. So it's, it's, it's humorous, but it's a slow moving satire. And that doesn't fit people's notions. So, so uh, people don't get it. Oh, well, uh, in any case, I consider myself a filmmaker and that was that. That was what I was going to do. So, however, I made the mistake of going to graduate school. And in graduate school, I took a computer course. Holy smoke, they lied. It's not a mathematical machine. It's not an engineering machine. It's an all-purpose machine. And you can put screens on it, 
and the screens can interact. Screens. I'm a movie maker. I know what to do. So it's my job to design the documents of the future because if I don't do it, the techies will screw it up. And that is exactly what has happened, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So since then, my life has been a campaign to, to create a different kind of document on the, on the interactive computer screen. For the first 20 years, I would tell people, I would say, look, soon we'll have interactive screens and we'll be able to have documents on the screen and they'll be, you'll be able to jump from one to the other and we'll show visible bands of connection between them and you'll have automatic royalty and, um, and uh, automatic backup and it'll all be available online. The term online was not popular yet. And people would look at me with a glazed expression and for the first 15 years, almost always they would say, is it like a tape? And I was stymied. I should have just said, yeah, it's like a tape. But I found three people who actually heard and understood me in those days, three out of the hundreds I talked to. So then came personal computing in the, in the 70s and I, I had a computer store, and, well, all kinds of anecdotes. But the problem is that uh, you know, things got standardized and uh, I wanted to start the personal computer industry, but no, that was done by, really done by a guy named Steve Jobs. And uh, he did it his way, but not my way. And uh, the Macintosh, again, which paved the way for today's, quote, modern GUI, the, the way we manipulate things, that's how Steve interpreted what Xerox Park had done. And once again, that's not what I would have done. And so what we have now are documents which imitate paper, which to me is as stupid. Uh, you know, it's, it's like uh, uh, putting an imitation horse on a car uh, because you've got something different. So to me, hypertext, which by which I meant not just the World Wide Web with one-way jump links, but with visible connections between pages, this was going to be the document system of the future for all mankind, as I hoped. And every standard makes it impossible to do that. Microsoft Word, uh, text files, uh, the World Wide Web, PDF, all of them have basically only one column. And I say, why? Because originally there was something called Project Bravo, which became Microsoft Word, and everybody was so hypnotized by fonts, which are fun. Uh, that they didn't realize that connection, I think, is much more important. Now, I love fonts. I designed a font in college. But to me, connection is more important. Hey, fonts, I learned to write on a typewriter, OK? That's how you should learn to write. So you can't put things into screwy italics and, and, and funny arrangements, because then you, you learn to write as distinct from arrange visibly. This concept became. The Xanadu project became an ongoing project for years and years and years. I called it Xanadu first in 1966 when I was assistant to the president of Harcourt Press and World, and I thought they were going to fund a project where I would have a an actual interactive computer screen that we could experiment with. Uh, this was after we'd seen Engelbart. I'll talk about Engelbart in a minute. And uh, I didn't realize 
that in any big corporation, your enemy is the other department. So there was already a department of computers that had IBM computers. So guess what? No way are they going to allow a non-IBM computer to be put into another department in that, in that company, at least in the 1960s. Perhaps this is a good time to talk about Douglas Engelbart. So I didn't know about him. Uh, I, I proceeded with my designs for computer documents from 1960 to my first publications in 1965. And after that, after my first, my big presentation at the ACM, a guy with a crew, ha crew haircut came up to me and asked if I'd heard of Douglas Engelbart. The guy with the crew haircut was Bob Taylor, who was Doug Engelbart's sponsor, giving him money from Washington. Doug Engelbart was an almost mystical visionary, the warmest and sweetest and kindest man I have ever known, but also an engineer, also able to work with deeply technical stuff and powered by an enormous ambition to fix the world. Because as you put it, we have more and more problems that are getting more and more tangled. We've got to be able to solve them at scale. So Douglas Engelbart essentially single-handed, essentially single-mindedly carried out his vision at Stanford Research Institute, which is not part of Stanford University, for a number of years his laboratory pioneered word processing, outline processing, multiple windows on a screen, uh, uh, a group where so many things we take for granted today, all of which were radical and which were not necessarily respected by the other departments. Uh, one of the things someone had said, you don't think what they're doing in there is science, do you? But Doug was an incredible visionary and he built this system and the climax of it was in December 68 with the great demo. Doug's great demo was December, I think, 15th, 1968, and so the 50th anniversary is coming up this year, where everything worked. They were done running it out of a small computer, by today's standards, less computer than you have in your wristwatch, and yet time-sharing, I think, I was told that the Mac, Rillison told me the maximum number they could do was seven, maybe four users at the time. But showing all these things at the screen and Doug with his microphone from San Francisco directing the whole affair which was being transmitted via a truck up on the highway that could see both, that could see both Stanford and, and San Francisco. And the projector they used at the Demo was an Ida 4 projector, one of these insane things. It had a CR, not a CRT, but a metal surface covered with oil. An electron beam wrote the picture on this oil, which was then reflected by a bright light through the projector. And then a windshield wiper would restore the oil for the next frame. That was just how the audience saw it. So this incredible chain of implausible structures worked perfectly on that day. And that was the height of Doug Engelbart's career. Because after that, he lost his funding, he lost his laboratory, and for the next 40 years, he was in the wilderness 
writing specs and trying to get backing again. His backer, Bob Taylor, betrayed him and hired away his best people for Xerox Park. And so Doug felt betrayed by the people who left him. And uh, a, 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 an AI guy named Bertram Raphael convinced Doug's boss that he deserved Doug's office instead. So Doug lost his office. Um, and, and eventually they sold the project to McDonnell Douglas, an, an aircraft company that didn't know what to do with it. Now, what it needed was much more product development to make it something real. And nobody had the vision to, to go ahead with it, so, except Doug, and he was essentially left in the dirt. So I met Doug in 65 when I gave my big ACM talk. Taylor comes, comes up to me, asks if I've heard of Doug, so no. But in 66, when I was working for the publishing company, Harcourt Brace, I went out there with the president of Harcourt, Bill Yovanovitch, and we visited Doug's laboratory. And so this was two years before the great demo, and we saw the mouse and word processing and all this wonderful stuff he'd done. And it was great. And Doug was obviously a wonderful man, and, and we were very friendly. He kind of half offered me a programming job, but I wanted to do it my way. Doug's system was hierarchical, and I'm anti-hierarchical. And so, uh, but, but I loved him as a person. And so I flew back with Yovanovitch thinking, and, and Yovanovitch was budgeting my system, then to be called Xanadu at $50,000 for the first year, which would have bought the equivalent of a, of a, uh, of a tiny PC today. And uh, uh, as I said, it was killed by a rival department. So that was essentially the first part of it. That was my friendship with, with Doug Engelbart resumed much later. We, we became very close in his later days, and he actually carried out the marriage ceremony when I married Marlene. So earlier, you talked about how Van Nivar Bush's piece uh, inspired you about connections between writing. Can you expand a little bit about that and expand on that a little bit and uh, describe how it influenced your later work? I have no idea. All I, all I know is that there was this article about how researchers of the future, now, and this came out in 45 when I was eight years old, okay? But I was right. And uh, it was about how researchers of the future could make connections between pieces of writing as frames of microfilm. And Bush talked about trails, and a trail, he never defined it, but it was a series of connected pieces. And he also talked about side trails, and again, we can only speculate as to what he meant. This has inspired many people. It inspired Doug Engelbart, who was on a Pacific island reading it in a library in the Philippines. It, ins it ins probably inspired me, though uh, many things have inspired me, and, but I do think I remember reading it, but I was eight, so hey. The, I've been fascinated by the number of different ways people have interpreted Bush's piece. So several people have shown me things saying, here, this is a memex, this is a memex, and it's always different. So wherever there are ideas, there are variations. And the true idea of the founder, once the founder is dead, who knows what it is, but someone's going to say, I'm carrying on the true idea of the founder. My own system, Xanadu, has more interpretations than stars in the sky. People keep saying, I know how to implement your Xanadu system now with blockchain, with anonymity, with physical location. 
these, I get these strange emails. I have them answered by an assistant, so not to get irritated. But uh, there, there are all these different interpretations. So how should writings be connected? And my idea, my simplification of it is parallel pages with visible connections. There are many other ways you could connect ideas, many other forms of writing you could create. I have chosen this particular simplification because I think it's elegant, it's simple, it's instantly understandable, and it's extensible. So that, but I someday hope that the elegance of the design will be recognized because elegance in design is one of the things I believe in. But I'm just pounding on trying to make people understand it and trying very hard still to get it implemented in a deployable form. Earlier, you used the word hypertext, which is a term that you coined. Mm. How does hypertext tie into Xanadu, the system that you've thought up, and how is it different than the way people usually conceive of the word today? Well, I coined the word. I came up with the word hypertext in '63, I think. It would be it would be on a dated file card. So some, someone someday will find out. But I published it in '65 in several papers. In the summer of '65, I published. Was it three? Was it five papers? Anyway, several. And hypertext was in those papers. And my definition at that time was non-sequential text with free user movement. Now, what that meant was right at that time, there was something called computer-assisted instruction. And everybody, a lot of people were hot on the trail of computer-assisted instruction. This was going to be what would rescue education because now the computer would tell you something, then it would test you. Then it would tell you something else and test you again. And, and, and so this, this, this tell and test, but you would have no free movement. So when I, in my definition of hypertext, I defined it as having free movement because I was really annoyed by the computer-assisted instruction concept. Not that there was something wrong with it, but rather that because I used it myself profitably on one occasion when I had to cram, when I had to cram statistics for my master's degree, uh, or what would have been my PhD, I used a teaching machine, which was tell and test, tell and test. <clears throat> and for someone with math anxiety like me, that was great. But for reading on the writing on the screen, I wanted something much more free. So that was why freedom was in the definition. However, uh, in my original drawings, or at least I'm not sure of the date, but you'll see the picture where I show visible connections on the screen. That could have been as late as 71. But in any case, that was part of my fundamental idea, I think, from the beginning. One of the really interesting implications that I've noticed about your work is what it means for ownership of ideas, intellectual property, copyright, and so on. Uh, what are your thoughts around that, and how do, does your version of hypertext solve that problem? My version had a complete copyright system, which is being universally ignored. People think of Creative Commons. Oh, that's the, that's the solution, because now we give permission for everybody to use it. Creative Commons is just a way that people can give up the hope of being paid in a, in a polite and elegant form. But I wanted to create a system of commerce that would create a viable way that people would be paid in a sensible and completely fair method. So in, Xanadu, in the Xanadu document, you don't deliver a packaged lump you deliver a list of portions to bring in and how to put them together. Mm -hmm. So 
Creative Commons says, I hereby give permission to use my stuff in somebody else's packaged lump. But we're not talking about packaged lumps. We're talking about someone creating a document using a piece from here, using a piece from there, using a piece from there. And that piece can have a paywall. So the micro paywalls we plan would, would say, here's a list of, of, of pieces to bring in. Now bring in this piece, which happens to be a paid piece, because the person who's compiling this document doesn't have to pay. He's already seen it. He or she has already seen it, but we're now including it in the list. The user, upon fulfilling these portions, has the choice of paying for that piece or not getting it. So that piece is paid for, is bought by the character. This seems to me extremely fair. Anyone is free to include anything from anywhere without negotiation. Anyone is free to buy it or not buy it if it's on the edit decision list which brings in the document. Mm -hmm. And so the permission doctrine for this is called trans-copyright, meaning I hereby give permission for this con content to be used in any new context provided it's brought from my server, which could imply the micro paywall. Right. And so there's this idea of uh, one canonical version of, of, the, of the idea, of the work, of the text, of the image, whatever. No, there's no canonical version of an idea. <laughs> of, the, of the manifestation of an idea. Right. Um, well, I say document. That's right. Yeah. Whereas these days, we, we sort of we make copies of everything. Yeah. Some of the things you did to imp implement these systems, and how did they handle that technically? Well, I, I had a very clear idea of approximately what I wanted. And I got together a group of extremely brilliant guys in the summer of 1979. And they came up with the system we now, I can now call Xanadu Classic, which is available open source. It's not quite finished. There's a few things that have to be fixed. But it works. It is a combination of a document management system and an operating system, meaning that it manages a fleet, a federation, of similar disks containing source content and links. So the Xano link is, is, is we, have, we, have no mark, we have no embedded markup. So all markup is done by what we call links. And so a document is delivered as a list of pointers to the content and pointers to the links, all of which are assembled in the user's machine. Mm -hmm. And so this is, and, and so that, that server software is available and has worked and it's download, you can download an instantiation at the Internet Archive, which you can play with, and uh, uh, called Xanadu Classic or, or Xanadu Green. And that, in the presentation that's on the archive, we see visible connections between the first and last draft of the Declaration of Independence as written by Thomas Jefferson. So Jefferson's last draft, which was signed as the Declaration of Independence, was different from his first draft, and those differences are shown by the Xanadu document method. Hmm. What were some of the differences? Well, we took out some phrases and put some in. So I think pursuit of happiness was in the final draft, but not in the previous. And, uh, and uh, his long list of, of grievances uh, were, I think, varied. And, well, I don't remember, but, but it's interesting because in the, in the presentation you can see gray on the left for the parts that were, were omitted, and gray on the right for the parts that were new. One of the terms that you came up with was transclusion. 
And uh, you, you touched on this a little bit before, where you could include links from other documents inside of... No, uh, you, you could include parts of other documents. Parts of other documents. Yeah. Uh, can you expand on that a bit? Sure. Well, the term has become common, but it means something a little different to me. Uh, so transclusion means that part of one thing is included in another and brought from the original. And uh, so something called iframes, for example, is transclusion. Uh, video from YouTube is embedded in another document. That's transclusion. But in the Xanadu method, tra transclu the transcluded portion has a path back to the original which you can follow so you can see its original context. That was always part of the that Xanadu idea and still is part of the, the, the instantiation I'm working on now. So the bilateral link is the critical difference between what we have at the moment. And there are links and there are transclusions. It's a different method. Mm -hmm. A link is a specific object separate from the content. A transclusion is simply following the path from a part to its original context. Gotcha. So it doesn't, it doesn't require a link. It's just here's the, here's the transcluded part and the edit decision list says where it comes from. So the edit decision can show you where it is on the original. That's a useful distinction. If, if we had had these bilateral transclusions and links where people could go back and forth and see the common source, they could see where, what something is pointing to, how would the web today be different? I don't want to talk about the web today. I hate it. I mean, the point is, if we'd had this in place before the web, and we should have had it up a year before, it might, the web would, of course, had it, have had its some success, mm -hmm. but we would have had a position for deeper scholarship, I think. Yeah. What has your process been for uh, communicating the ideas of Xanadu to the world? Talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> you know, I've, I've written, a, I don't know how many papers I've published, I don't know how many talks I've given, but uh, what people hear is much less than you say. And, and uh, I, I found out later how little people hear. Now, Doug had this problem, Doug Engelbart had this problem a little even worse because he would begin talking and then he would introduce a new term and then he would start using it. Mm -hmm. And so by the fourth paragraph, he was combining terms that are new to you in ways you cannot imagine. Whereas I was trying to explain what to me were very simple concepts, but they were so unfamiliar that nobody got it. I mean, Tim Berners-Lee didn't understand it. Yeah. What part of it did he miss? Visible connection. He, we argued as recently as 1997 about micropayment. I was saying micropayment was necessary, and he was saying, no, 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 now he's come around. But, uh, but no, he just, he just did a different system. See, the hypertext concept was alas, simplified in a project at Brown University, which I refer to as the Dark Brown Project. Um, a person I thought was my friend was a professor at Brown, and he invited me, no pay, to come up to Brown University and help work on it. So at great personal cost, both in time and money, I went and helped. And it got dumbed down. We lost transclusion and, and, uh, and lost two-way links. But I was, I was not a quitter, and I should have... I should have quit at the very beginning when he started insulting me. And so, so that's, a, that's a black mark in my memory. And the concept of hypertext got reduced to one-way links and, and, uh, and uh, embedded markup. So uh, that essentially is where, where it all went wrong. And Tim Berners-Lee's system, which was like a, the sixth hypertext system on the internet, people think it was the first, simply glorified that. 
And by the way, he didn't need to do HTML. He didn't need to do uh, HTTP. What he did, the, the, mo the, the best thing that Tim did was to create the URL. Because before he started, every drive from every operating system had a different way of addressing. So if you had to, if you wanted to get a file from the internet, you had to know its address and know the operating system it was under and the addressing system in order to reach that file. So the URL changed all that, making, giving every operating system an overlay addressing scheme so that percent 20 became a space, a space became percent 20 only because that was how Tim worked out to unify the address space of the web, of, of the net. So that, that to me is his greatest achievement and the rest would have followed uh, if he'd done that. I, I mentioned this to him just last week and he said, yeah, yeah, oh, you get it. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, we still have broken links these days too, well, yeah. in part because of the lack of the, the bi-directional link. And well, also, uh, I've been told here at the, web, at the Internet Archive that the average lifetime of a web page is 100 days huh. before it changes or disappears. How do they measure that? Because they crawl the web constantly looking for changes. And they have billions of web pages stored here. In the Xanadu system, uh, how would these changes be different? Well, look, I'm not trying to promote Xanadu as an alternative to the web anymore. Mm. I'm trying to promote it as a literary system. Mm. I'm trying to build it as a literary system that people can use for making parallel pages with visible connections. And we have to, unfortunately, use parts of web technology for that, but because that way people don't have to install an application. But uh, uh, I don't want to talk about its relation to the web. I want to just talk about parallel pages with visible connection, and that's what the system is about. Sure. Uh, how would you like to see it be adopted? By the smartest people first. How are you going about finding those folks? I'm not looking for them. I'm, I'm trying to get a minimal viable product. Mm -hmm. What's your process for building this minimum viable product? Well, it's first of all thinking of, about what can people use with the least difficulty that is the least difficult to program. So then I talk to my programmers or programmer, whoever I talk to, and we work out the exact specs. And, uh, and so there's a ladder of specs that first this and first that and first that. So <clears throat> the first one I'm trying to build will just be a comment, but with two pages visibly mm -hmm. connected. And the second bit will be several pages visibly connected. Uh, a nice example is Vladimir Nabokov's novel, Pale Fire, which is a long poem by the fictitious author John Shade, followed, connected to a large number of idiotic footnotes by the fictitious academic uh, Charles Kinboat. And ironically, back in the day, when I, the days of the Dark Brown Project, I actually got permission from the publishers of Pale Fire to demonstrate it on the Brown system. So now I hope to demonstrate it on the news entity. Amazing. What do you see as the future of micropayments? I have no idea, but now there are so many competing systems and so many enthusiastic projects that are incompatible. So there will be many, many things, and as usual, uh, the big guys will win. And uh, so Google or Microsoft or somebody will have a, payment, a micropayment system for who knows what, probably for individual pages, as distinct from the portionality that 
the, for, of transcluded and quoted material that we were hoping for. I'm very unhappy about the web, but now we're stuck with it. Is it something you plan to incorporate into the Xanadu system that you're building right now? I can't even think that far ahead. Your ideas around Xanadu have gone through a lot of different paradigms, and you've communicated in many different ways in different medium. How have you thought about that process, and is there anything that you would have done differently in communicating it? Oh, my, yes. Oh, I would, so many things I would have done differently. Yes, I, I was offered backing by Vector General around 1971, and I thought, I'm not ready. What a stupid idea that was. Unfortunately, I came out of college with a combative attitude. I was ready for any debate on any subject. And only recently have I become acquainted with a book I should have read long ago called How to Win Friends and Influence People, which essentially tells you that you know, uh, you, you, people need to make an idea their own to adopt it. And if you emphasize that it's your idea, and then, then there, there's going to be already a, a paywall. And, uh, and uh, so many things about how I presented it were unsatisfactory. And so uh, the only reason the idea is still alive is by the strange fact that I'm still alive, because it would be long dead otherwise. And, uh, but uh, there's, you know, I have to do it. One thing I noticed in reading a lot of your writing uh, in preparation for this was that um, there's a lot of emphasis on copyright and the fact that these ideas were something that you wanted to commercialize. What role did your own intellectual property play in your development of the ideas? Well, let's, let's sort this out. First of all, a number of techies at the beginning thought that copyright would end once computers made it easy to copy things. It was absolutely clear to me that it would not, and that copyright had to be a fundamental part of any electronic publishing system. It had to respect the author's rights. So, that's, so, so that was always part of the Xanadu project. Now, in trying to commercialize, yes, I was trying to make money, as many people were, and that, that's always been legitimate. And trademark was always emphasized. I had a good friend who emphasized, A, trademark is almost free and is a good way of distinguishing your stuff. So those are there's, there's two entirely separate topics here. I supported copyright because it was necessary and part of the publishing world. And I trademarked things and, and tried to go commercial because that was how things were done. So for people who are coming up with visionary new ways to uh, rethink knowledge, to rethink the way we use technology, um, what advice would you give people as they develop those ideas? Hang in and don't become locked to some specific method too soon. And remember that things keep changing. So the environment, so if you're successful, the environment in which you become successful will be different from the environment you're starting in. Can you give some examples from your own experience? Well, when I first met Bill Gates in 1972, I guess it was, he was working for micro-instrumentation and telemetry systems in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But he had managed to put in the contract that he was keeping the copyright to his version of BASIC that they were selling. 
And so he gradually snowballed this. He had been, he was a visionary in the following sense. He knew personal computing was coming and he built BASIC at Harvard. So he and his pal <coughs> copied the digital equipment version of BASIC on stolen time at Harvard <laughs> for six months or something. So they would have a version of BASIC when personal computing arrived. And that was very visionary of them. And then how he was able to maneuver around all the things that happened was quite something. And so the question I think you asked was, how do you sustain and maintain something through, through a changing environment? And watching Microsoft climb out of micro-instrumentation telemetry systems <laughs> into the behemoth it became is an interesting example. What did it feel like to think of and see these ideas coming up before they existed? Because there's so much that we take for granted today about how the web, how computers, how all of this technology works. So what was it like to be there? Well, first of all, I was on my own for five years. But I joined the ACM, I read computer journals, I read computer magazines. So I was deep in the thinking of those people who, to whom computers were corporate devices that lived in the department. And looking at all the methods developed by various researchers. For example, one researcher I admired very much was Ken Knowlton, and he and I have become very good friends. He was at Bell Labs. He worked out a gra he was the first person to fill a screen with pixels. And that screen was on the Stromberg Carlson 4020, which had 16 millimeter film and was able to put a dot in each position. But to take, put a dot in each position would have taken too long, so Tim, uh, uh, um, Ken, made pictures that would, he would put in, that have different levels of, different levels of brightness with which he would make a bigger picture. And so from a, from a distance, he would see the bigger picture rather than seeing that it was made of little tanks and airplanes. So I think there's a famous nude that is made of little tanks and airplanes that was somehow pulled off that system. So, so I was aware of many things that were going on, but I was sure there would be personal computing and that we would all have interactive computer screens. And I didn't know anyone else who thought that. The, the company that made the first little computers, Digital Equipment Corporation, was headed by a visionary, Ken, Ol Ken, Nolton, Ken Olson, who built little computers for scientific companies. And when personal came, computing came along, he didn't get it. He put out a personal computer, it was marvelous, for $12,000, when everybody else was going, was under 1,000. Because he think, oh, they want, the engineers want the best. And if it's only for engineers, he didn't get it. So the digital equipment went under and they had been the pioneers in computer graphics and in small machines. So dancing through this world and seeing how these other people thought and trying to push forward my visualization of electronic documents was a complicated parallel process of giving speeches, of writing things, and I never got paid for this, you see. So I was, I was constantly in fringe jobs. And, and, uh, and I had no backing. After, the, the one big chance was Harcourt and, he, and the IBM department killed me. And so after that, it was one job after another, one fringe job after another. I taught sociology at Vassar for two years because no one would pay me for what I had to do because I had to do it. It was, one, it was my manifest destiny. It was, it was my obligation. And the fact that I didn't succeed, well, 
around this time, what were some of the, the books or articles or movies that you read or watched that influenced you the most? None. There was one guy named Ivan Sutherland who built a system called Sketchpad. Well, as I mentioned, Ken Knowlton. I, I admire the elegance of his stuff. And Sketchpad, which was uh, a highly efficient system for drawing and sketching on screens. And that was done at MIT in 65, so or 64. And, and I visited MIT and saw and got a chance to use these things. And I got a chance to use the, at MITRE Corporation, a system called I don't remember, but a fellow named Don Walker showed it to me. And it was the first time I'd actually used a light pen. And I wept, but only out of the eye he didn't see. <laughs> and uh, because it was exactly how I knew it was going to be. And uh, so that, and then there were the stages of trying to, trying to make money uh, starting a computer score store in, in Chicago, which was briefly successful, but my, my partners were idiots, and, uh, and nobody was minding the store, and uh, computer stores went under. And uh, so it's been, you know, dancing on rainbows. How did you develop these ideas on your own? By thinking, and writing, and making notes, and making sketches. It's been very lonely but I've been absolutely sure of what I've been doing all the time. So one of the main definitions of paranoia is believing what nobody else believes. So one cure is for the patient to change his mind and believe what the rest of the world believes. That is the low road. The other, by which I hope to cure myself, is to persuade everybody else then I will no longer be paranoid, but recognized as having been right all along.